You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, Alex Jakimovich, an activist and small businessman, speaks with us about economic democracy, worker cooperatives, public banks, participatory budgeting, and how transnational trade deals like the TPP or TTIP threaten everyone and our chances for economic democracy. What is an alternative to the world where the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a massive corporate giveaway, what is an alternative world where that doesn't make sense, where that really shouldn't even be happening to begin with? It, It has to be a world where people have a lot of control over their economic decisions directly. Hello, this is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Gola Zika greetings to you in the Penobscot language. I'm coming to you from the banks of the beautiful Penobscot River here in Penobscot Territory in the state of Maine. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Rivera Sun, and our special guest, Alex Jakimovich. Hello, Rivera. Hi, Sherry. It's wonderful to be back in New Mexico after a trip up north to Wisconsin and Chicago, which Chicago has no snow or didn't when I was there, but I heard they just got inundated. And uh, Wisconsin was just doing winter, just perfect. It was uh, beautiful up there. And it's great to be back and doing Love and Revolution from our remote locations here in New Mexico and out there in Maine. And also our guest is in Maine this week. Welcome to the show, Alex. Well, thank you both. I'm very much excited to uh, talk to you, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. I want to let our listeners know that Alex Jakimovich is an activist, spiritualist, a small businessman living in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. He's been an active as an organizer with a variety of social justice and economic justice campaigns in Maine and also nationally. He has also worked with a network of volunteers on issues of economic democracy as a means towards a more stable and just society. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, Alex. I'm so glad to have you on the show with us today. And it's interesting that you're um, speaking with us today, although the recording is going to come out on Wednesday. Today, as we're talking, there are demonstrations going on all over the world regarding the TPP. And I was wondering if you would tell our listeners what the TPP is and what you think its impacts are going to be on society. Thanks, Sherry. Yes, today is a very special day indeed, because today, I believe in New Zealand, an international trade agreement among 12 signature countries is being signed. This is called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it affects as much as 40% of the world's economy. The history of the TPP is a little strange because 
it was a closed door agreement, completely opaque, without any public scrutiny up until very, very recently. And the people doing all of the negotiations were representing major corporate interests. So there were there was no input from people really involved in public advocacy or environmentalists or a lot of folks that are interested in preserving local economies. Um, one of the major tenets of the TPP is to uh, provide a means for corporations uh, much stronger intellectual property rights, uh, whereby they would have corporate tribunals which would oversee international trade agreements and disputes. They're called Interstate Dispute Settlement Tribunals, ISDS systems. And these corporate tribunals would basically allow for corporations to have um, the right to sue member nations for expected losses to future profits. The, the TPP is really looking to supersede local, state, national governments of the signatory countries so that the corporate interests that are agreed to supersede all state, local, and national laws. So even the Supreme Court of the United States would have no say over these trade agreements. How some of these trade agreements have been used in the past is that they've been used to um, overturn things like minimum wage laws. They've been used to dump excess subsidized industrial products onto other countries, such as with NAFTA and with corn, which was dumped onto Mexico, which ruined the Mexican agricultural economy. So the TPP is NAFTA on steroids, um, according to many of its critics, because if so much of the world is affected and the, the kind of powers are so pervasive that really there's not much to stop it from uh, from really cutting back all kinds of regulations at the local and state level. So, you know, one of the things that's happening around the world is that citizens of all stripes and natures are rising up against it. Here in the U.S., we're seeing that both right-wing uh, and left-wing people are equally disgusted with this trade deal. As you mentioned, you said that the TPP is NAFTA on steroids and that it's not just the TPP. It's actually three trade deals, the TPP, which is the Pacific one, and the TTIP, which is the Atlantic one, and then the Trade in Services Agreement, TISA. And all three of these are uh, an evolution of what we saw with NAFTA and TAFTA. They're also uh, very much a step in a um, direction that people across the world don't want to go in. We want to be moving back towards localized uh, economies, demo democratic control of our economies, more equality and justice. If the TPP is a step in the wrong direction, what would be a move in a right direction? I mean, what's all our alternatives to these massive corporate trade deals that are running the global economy? Is there a, vi a viable alternative? I think that that's a great question. Um, one of the things that they're trying to put forward is that there is no alternative. This PINA, there is no alternative that corporate centralized economic systems are the way to go. We're really looking globally at economic globalization. We are looking to 
move industry to move exports to increase exports. That's the way that nations grow their economies these days. These trade agreements are being sold as being good for the United States, good for workers. But what they really are is they're opening up a Pandora's box of a race to the bottom with wages, with environmental regulations, with living standards. It's a way to export very poor working conditions outside of the United States, outside of the uh, very industrialized and developed nations, to really, we're exporting our wealth to these other nations such as China, Malaysia, India. And what are we getting in return? We're getting cheap goods and services. We're getting a, a net loss of manufacturing jobs. We're getting massive corporate corporate protections. So what is an alternative to the world where the TTP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a massive corporate giveaway, what is an alternative world where that doesn't make sense, where that really shouldn't even be happening to begin with? It, It has to be a world where people have a lot of control over their economic decisions directly. It has to be a world where there isn't a flood of foreign goods and services permeating the local market, crushing the opportunities for local economies and industries to flourish, to grow. It has to be a world where there isn't masses of economic inequality at every level of society. I think that uh, it's also really important when we start thinking about some of these things to understand this whole premise of economic democracy. A lot of people don't really understand what economic democracy is. And I think it would be really important to this discussion if we could frame out what is the meaning of economic democracy and what does that look like um, within the context of what you're talking about here, because it's really kind of central to the whole discussion, don't you think? I think economic democracy contains within it many key pieces of of the puzzle. Economic democracy at the very simplest level means, or has traditionally meant, when people have direct control over their economic lives, over the most important decisions of their lives. So true democracy means governing of the demos, of the people themselves, but We've been applying this to political democracy as if political democracy is real democracy, but it can't be without economic democracy, without control of our economic lives. The political democracy doesn't mean much at all. Well, um, I was listening to Richard Wolff, who does Economic Update, and we've had him on our previous radio show as well, who likes to remind people that we think we live in a democracy, but what is it that we do right when we get up in the morning? We drive to work and we enter a complete non-democracy. For most of us, unless we actually, you know, work in a worker-owned cooperative in which we're part of the decision-making structure. What are the, the key layers of this economic democracy? I think you've put your finger on the tip of a big piece of it, and and that's at the most basic level in our workplaces. If the workers themselves do not run the workplace, then there's a tier of control 
there's also a tier of, of benefits. And the beautiful thing about worker-run and worker-led cooperatives is that those benefits are really spread out within the workers themselves. The incentive, the incentive with a worker-owner is so much different from what it is for a person that just goes in and clicks their uh, pay stub every day. Getting back to your question of, of whether worker cooperatives um, are part of economic democracy, what they really do that's much different from other types of corporations or other entities, workplace entities, is that they keep the wealth local. They also enable workers a means to work together in harmony without having a massive tension between the workforce and with the management or with the ownership. But to get back to Sherry's question a moment of, of what are how do we kind of describe economic democracy to see where these new forms fit in? I think of economic democracy in four planes. And the first one is an ethical plane that all of the needs of the members of society should be met. That the needs for housing, housing, for, for clothing, for education, for access to clean water, for medical care, all of these things are available and all members of society should have them. So one of the questions is, what is the best means of getting all members of society to have the necessary requirements of life? And one view is that the best way of doing it is increasing people's purchasing capacity, increasing their ability to meet their own needs ever increasing their ability to meet their own needs so that people eventually in an ideal world would have to work less and less and less and less and their needs would be met. Thirdly, economic decisions should really be made by local people. A factory shouldn't close because some corporate headquarters determines um, that it's much more profitable to close down a factory in Maine and move it to Canada or move it to Singapore and sell the same goods and services, but just from a different location, that should be really be under the control of the people that live there. Alex, this kind of brings me to another question. You know, what you're talking about is a real participatory democracy in regard to the, the economic system. And some of the things that come to mind for me when I'm thinking about that are, um, of course, this idea of participatory budgeting, you know, as a process of democratic deliberation and decision making that really kind of perpetuates this idea of participatory democracy. And the second thing that it brings to mind is public banking. So I was wondering if you could touch on, you know, this whole notion of participatory budgeting and then talk to us a little bit about your experiences with public banking. Um, participatory budgeting is a way of citizens themselves who live in an area to have a say in how the government spends designated resources for things like infrastructure and things like that. So, for instance, in New York City and Chicago, which are the two largest cities in the United States, having a participatory uh, budgeting process, ordinary citizens at the at the most grassroots level 
or having a say on where to put up stop signs, having a say on where to put up a little tree, a little park. They have all kinds of input, and it's it's really changing the dynamic of empowerment. It's really allowing people to uh, have an opportunity to control you know, how those resources are, are spent directly. And this is, is something that normally is not possible at all. State government is a separate apparatus which operates on its own set of rules, hopefully in the public good, but with this disconnect between what's going on um, at the local level and then as you go a few levels above that, oftentimes the resources don't get to where they need to go. Participatory budgeting brings that level of control and that level of connection back to the community level. And it's a, it's a really wonderful thing. What about public banking? Uh, what is that and why is it so important? So public banking is a way of stopping economic leakages. That's one of its main features. And by economic leakages, I mean this. When the state of Maine spends $100 million for a public bond, for instance, to make a massive renovation of major of major roads, we put to bond $100 million and we paid that bond back entirely and with interest. Well, at 7% interest for the five-year payment, we're looking at around 45% or so of the total cost of that $100 million. So we're paying back almost 50% more than what we're taking out. One of the things that public banks do is that they allow this loss, this leakage from the state economy to be completely taken out. So instead of paying um, very large Wall Street banks that own a fair amount of public debt. The the state of North Dakota, which is the only state in the country which has a public bank, they are able to make out loans to their small farmers directly. They're able to finance a lot of the state budget that uh, isn't met. And by doing so, the state um, whatever, whatever interest that would have been paid off to itself, instead of losing that interest, those, that money gets recirculated into the state budget process and they have pensions saved up for the next 75 years in North Dakota, um, largely as a result of their state bank. Um, the state banking system itself really is looking at ownership of large central banks that can serve very specific but limited functions and, and looking at the ownership of them instead of being privately held corporations to be, to be publicly held corporations to act almost identically as a uh, private corporation, but the ownership is different. And also the degree of speculation and speculative capital is also greatly, greatly diminished. Um, my experience uh, with public banking is from back in 2012 where I got in contact with a public banking institute and there's a woman, Ellen Brown, who is really at the forefront of a big effort to to promote public banking as an institution locally and nationally. So if the United States had 
a federal public bank, the federal public bank could loan the United States all of its debt service. So we wouldn't have to put it to private bonds and being paying back billions every year. Annually, the United States spends $400 billion a year in payments just for the interest on the national debt, almost. It's a little bit more than that. It's $400 billion for the interest on the national debt. That $400 billion could be could have been saved if we had a public banking system. So, so that's that's a big advantage. When I met Ellen Brown, I invited her to come speak in Maine, and part of the process of of that is state legislators um, had an interest, and with the help of my state senator, um, we arranged for a private meeting with eight or nine state legislators in Portland, and as a result of that meeting, some other people got involved who are also have an interest have an interest in public banking and two bills were drafted in early 2013 by democratic legislators and put forward in committee and they were also wrecked in committee the the local banks in Maine were uh, raising red flags and acting like this was going to be the end of the world if uh Maine had a public bank, but as we looked at the, the raw data, Maine would probably have saved between 27 and $40 million a year if it had a public bank, and in general, large public projects would be vastly reduced in cost, and this is just uh, an enormous uh, savings for taxpayers, and this is something that, if it was widely known, just the raw economics of it, that no matter what side of the political spectrum people are from, this this would be supported, I would, I would have to say. But instead, it gets lost in a paradigm of, oh, this is just big government. We don't want government involved in our banking sector. But that's not the way it works in a large uh, part of the world where there are national banks. Is one of the components of a public banking system also that the populace is involved in establishing the lending practices of the bank, or is that still being run by a select group of people, say with the example of North Dakota or with the global field of national banks? Um, is there democratic control of the policy and practices of the bank, as well as the basic concept that the money that's being borrowed is actually the people's money being paid back to the people's coffers? Versus, as you said, in a private banking system where the interest that's paid back is going directly to private banking institutions. It's never coming back to the people. So aside from the, the actual where the, the interest goes or even the interest rate, what about the, the practices and policies of the bank itself? Like with our local credit unions, we can sometimes, depending on your credit union, be involved in establishing that you're going to do low interest loans or small business loans and uh, that there's going to be lending practices that really benefit the um, the less economically enfranchised community part of your community. Is that true for public banks as well? I think that it has the potential to be all of those things, especially at the municipal level. So for instance, um, I believe Occupy San Francisco was looking to promote a public bank for San Francisco and plans were put forward to a councilman there. And the amount of money that would be put into this bank was potentially enormous. And the bank could fund all kinds of things. So 
at the municipal level, the potential for public banking, for instance, to give low interest loans to disenfranchised communities or to startup businesses or to local cooperatives or to other businesses that ordinarily would not get the same treatment through the private banking sector. So I believe that the potential is there, but we only have one example to go by in the United States, and that's the State Bank of North Dakota, which was which came into existence for a very specific purpose back in, I believe, 1919. There was an epidemic of bankruptcies of farmers in North Dakota, and they were losing their farms, literally losing their farms to Wall Street banks in foreclosure. And the state came together, and this is in a red Republican state, the state came together and decided to finance these farmers directly to give them very low interest loans. And as a result, the state bank came into being and it grew and grew and grew. It's basically like a public utility. It's not trying to fundamentally make a profit, but by keeping the wealth circulated in the in the the uh, in the system of the local economy of of North Dakota, they've had massive boom years, boom years that are far superior to other oil rich states. And the biggest difference is that they have a state bank. Their state bank can lend money to state government instead of having to put that money to to private bond, where that money essentially just leaves the local economy. And this gets back to this notion of economic democracy, of how do you maximize people's purchasing capacity? How do you make sure that everyone is getting their needs met? Well, a lot of it is the fiscal discipline of not allowing the wealth to be extracted through all of these private entities at every level of our economy. And a public bank is just one mechanism of the new economy, which allows for the economic leakages to be reduced. Alex, I think that this is a really good segue for us because what we're talking about here is really looking at how people live where they are and how do they live in a way that honors what they have available to them in their local communities. So you're not seeing a big truck on the highway that's taking logs south who's passing another big truck on the highway that's taking logs north. Exactly. And so you're starting to live in a different way with your homeland, with your natural environment. And I think that that's something that um, really kind of segues us really nicely into the love aspect of Love and Revolution Radio, because really when we start talking about shifting the way that we live to be more mindful of the environments, the ecosystems, and the needs of the place where we live, you know, I think that it's it's really interesting that one of the things that is most problematic in our discussions of democracy is that it's entirely focused on our own needs as human beings. However, there seems to be this emerging ethos that's being driven by a rising sense of awareness and certainly urgency regarding the harm that we've done to the earth and to other living beings as a result of our self-focused behaviors. And I think that this shifting worldview that I know that you also have your own perceptions of uh, harkens back to an ancient view of creation as being one living entity. 
And it's in alignment with my own worldview as a Bonawapskik woman that leads us to um, decision-making that takes into account all living beings. And we'll be back speaking with Alex Jakimovich after we take a quick break for a station ID and your weekly dose of nonviolent history. This week in Nonviolent History, we celebrate the birth of Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was born on February 6, 1890, in the Peshawar Valley of British-controlled India. At the age of 20, Ghaffar Khan founded a village mosque school, and thus began his revolutionary work against British colonial control with what his contemporary, Mohandas K. Gandhi, was calling constructive program. Ghaffar Khan worked tirelessly for independence and self-rule, forming a close relationship with Gandhi over the course of their lives. In 1929, Ghaffar Khan formed the Servants of God, a nonviolent army that grew to include 80,000 to 100,000 people. Some consider this to be the first nonviolent army, and the Servants of God remain one of the largest examples in history of, one, of a sustained, ongoing nonviolent organization. The Servants of God faced the brutal and violent repression of the British with indomitable will. One time, Ghaffar Khan asked Gandhi why his Pashtuns were staying committed to nonviolence, despite the repression at the time, when many Hindus were losing their nerve and falling back on violence. The Mahatma said, We Hindus have always been nonviolent but we haven't always been brave. Gandhi's point was similar to Dr. King's, made much later, that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people, and that the Pashtuns, for all of their complex and often violent history, had cultivated the bravery and courage necessary for waging nonviolence. Ghaffar Khan was called by several nicknames and honorifics throughout his life, including Badshah or Bacha Khan, which means King of Chiefs, and also he was called the Frontier Gandhi. He was arrested, beaten, exiled, and held under house arrest for much of his life. He died at age 97 in Afghanistan, where he was buried. Despite the heavy fighting at the time, both sides of the Soviet war in Afghanistan declared a ceasefire to allow his burial. 200,000 people joined his funeral procession to honor his life's work. The remarkable efforts of Bajra Khan, the frontier Gandhi, should be known to all of us as a jaw-dropping example of a Muslim peacemaker devoted to nonviolence. Know your nonviolent history. It might change your life. And we are listening to Spanish Rain by Alex Jakimovich himself. He's not only an activist and a economic democracy advocate, he's also a musician. We all wear many hats, and if you are enjoying this music, you can find more of his stuff on SoundCloud under Alex Jakimovich. We'll also put the link in our show notes. Now let's go back and speak with Alex Jakimovich a little bit more about the deep underlying value shift that is required for creating a just economy. One of the things that I've heard you speak of before 
And I know that you have a pretty deep spiritual practice as well that incorporates a lot of this, is this underlying spirit of humanism that's extended to everything animate and inanimate um, in the universe. And that uh, Prabhat Ranjan Sakar has this whole um, teaching on the philosophy of neo-humanism, which is a philosophy to elevate humanism to universalism for love of all created beings in the universe. So can you kind of bring us from this really human-focused discussion into a more neo-humanistic discussion? And how do those two marry together? Because a lot of the discussion we've had with people on the show has really been about localizing your efforts, learning to live in harmony with your local environment, learning to value your local ecosystems, learning to make a living to establish an economy that's in harmony with the natural world rather than exploitive of it. So this is really about shifting the paradigm, shifting our worldview, shifting our relationship with the earth and with all other living beings. And this has to play a vital role in our movement forward. And I was hoping that you would talk to us a little bit about your views on that today as well. Yes, Sherry. This is a a massive subject because it's really getting to the the main feature of looking at an economy and looking at personal ethics and personal responsibility. What is my relation to this world? What is my relation to other beings? How is how I am living my life impacting other beings? How should it be impacting other beings? You mentioned Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar, PR Sarkar. He propagated a theory called progressive utilization theory, and it's a socioeconomic paradigm based in spiritual values. Key to this paradigm is this thought of what is progress? How does society progress? What is progressing towards what? In his view, all of society is one. Society is not just the people in the locality. It is everyone without anyone left out. And that society, to function, it functions as a family. In Prout, emphasis is given to the maximizing individual and collective potential in progressing towards having opportunities and expression for various potentials, physical potentials, intellectual potentials. We would also argue spiritual potentials of diving deeper into ourselves, into the mysteries of the universe, but in such a way where I'm developing my economic potential, I'm developing my intellectual potential, where I'm not taking away from another person, where I'm not needlessly causing harm to the environment, where I'm not keeping someone else's opportunity down by exploiting a privilege that I have. A major component of this has to be in ethics. And and one of the pieces of ethics is that many of the most important decisions of a, of a community should be made collaboratively. They should really be looking at what is the effect for an entire ecosystem. We should be looking at expanding our potentials individually, expanding our potentials collectively, but in harmony with each other. You mentioned neo-humanism. The, the essence of neo-humanism 
is a brother and sisterhood of humanity, which is extended to all living beings and also to inanimate objects. Everything is sacred. When we come to this kind of view, with this viewpoint, our sense of identity and our sense of self is no longer confined to a very small radius. The spiritual practices that I, that I do encourage me to be more connected to my community, to feel a sense of bonding with fellow human beings, that their losses are my losses, their successes are my successes, and I, I really feel that to a great extent. And I think that when you have an expanded sense of yourself, it changes you. And I think that's, that's really got to be the heart of the next heart-based revolution. Alex, I'm curious to get your pulse on this question that's stirring in my heart, is that when I travel around the country, I find that, surprisingly, people in their local communities are not nearly as separated from these uh, values and these spiritual questions, whether regardless of what religion or faith they are, that they're not as far away from these understandings as it seems our national mentality is, or even our globalized mentality, or and especially our corporatized mentality is. And so what I find is that people in their local communities, they actually care about their environment. Um, not just environmentalists, but people who care about the health of the wildlife because they like to hunt and fish. Uh, people who care about the uh, the landscape because they care about their home values, right? So they have uh, different reasons for caring, but they're not as separated from seeing the world as an interconnected web as I would say our certainly our corporate economic structure is, which emphasizes privatized profits of a few over any sort of worldview of interconnection. So my question for you is, given that, given that concept, is it a question then of democratizing as you said, the economy and democratizing our basically non-democracy or our governmental structures so that the values of the people are expressing more clearly. Is that all that needs to be done? Or is there more work in terms of awakening and educating and discussing and conversing with one another or both? That's a very complicated question. <laughs> Let me see if I can unwrap a, a little bit of it. I come to that question from a much different angle. I see human beings working together towards common goals, that we understand what's going on in our local environment, that we make a plan with other people, and that we carry out those plans. So on one level, it's a matter of knowledge, of knowing what's going on, of knowledge of what's going on in ourselves and in society. What, what are the forces holding, holding me back? or the forces holding society back. There has to be a socioeconomic analysis. There has to be an awakening of, of solidarity of needs with other people in our communities. There just has to be. Without that, there's just, there's just no base. We don't have any sense of what other people are going through if we aren't immediately identified with what's going on with them. There has to be a much closer cultural connection um, that's just a starting point. You mentioned 
the separation, the isolation, the atomization, which is caused by the corporatization, the commodification of so many parts of our society, were made into little atoms of consumption, disconnected from each other, and plugged into a corporate system which gives us our desires on tap. We're led away from community and towards our self-interest and towards quicker and easier ways of maximizing our indulgences. There has to be a level of personal responsibility and restraint, which is a very strange thing on the face of it to say, which is necessary for personal and collective revolution to happen in a constructive way, that people can't really have unlimited appetites for wealth and privilege and want to own five houses. That kind of greed and avarice is a disease for society. And it leads to further atomization. It leads to further disconnection from what our sisters and brothers are going through. So I think that those two aspects of uh, socioeconomic awareness and personal restraint and responsibility are key first steps in having a society where something different can happen other than globalized corporate capitalism. The antithesis of capitalism, which is in its fundamental form, massively accumulating huge amounts of wealth, but in so doing, impoverishing so many people, the antithesis of that is a system of rational distribution of wealth, but also of incentives, of incentivizing talent according to social needs. Not everybody is equal. We all have different talents, but how do we arrive at maximizing our individual talents? We have to have an economic and educational system which incentivizes our talents. This really goes back to, for me, um, to this traditional way of being, um, this traditional way of life that I've mentioned on the on the show before, which is um, and it's living in accordance to the old traditions. It's living in accordance to those core values that are a part of our way of life. And there are elements of that that really incorporate some of the things that you're talking about. And they're just basic human values. It's about looking at everyone and realizing that they have something valuable to offer and not creating this hierarchy of value on what our individual skill sets are. We've seen incredible devaluation of the role of parenting in the world, for instance, where people almost dismissively say, oh, well, you know, this individual's a stay-at-home parent. Anyone that's been a parent knows what that means. But for the larger part, society doesn't put a monetary value on that. And so there's this hierarchy of valuation, somebody who's incredibly artistically talented, visionary, um, a talented musician, you know, all of these number of things where society hasn't um, valued it in a way that everybody feels that what they have to contribute is meaningful and useful to the community or to the larger society. And I think that that value structure that we placed on 
our gifts, the value structure that we place on these certain elements of um, contribution to the society really disrupts our ability to be able to do that in a real cooperative rather than competitive way. And I think that, you know, we have to really start thinking about how do we shift this competitive mindset that has been so deeply embedded into our psyche to a more cooperative model, which is really um, the nature of living beings is to be cooperative rather than competitive. This whole idea of uh, competitiveness and of stockpiling incredible wealth, all of this is really, in my mind, a mental and spiritual illness. And so when we start thinking about how do we create a new paradigm for valuation within our society, that's at the heart of it. And we really have to start challenging those old ways of thinking and bringing in something new and looking at people in a different way. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that and, you know, could speak about how do we change the way that we think about what we value? And how do we change the way that that manifests outwardly into our democracy, into our um, economies, you know, into so many of the things that are held in the public domain? We really have to have a complete paradigm shift in order to be able to accomplish some of the things that you're talking about. And to me, that's the love revolution. It's about really coming to a place of really embodying these things that we claim to believe in and really looking at each other, appreciating each other, treating each other and the entire world differently than the way that we have been, which has been based on these real kind of cutthroat competitive models. I think this aspect of of loving ourselves and loving each other, how does that manifest in the world? What does that look like in the world? And I remember a quote attributed to Cornel West, the struggle for justice is love in the public sphere. That's what it begins to look like when we assert the rights of everyone. That's what love is. When we begin to do service for others without any desire for recognition, when we help people that need it without seeking anything in return, without needing anything in return, when their cries are our cries, and when their happiness is our happiness, then we're on the right track to having an open heart. To change people's values, I think it's such a complex thing. I have to imagine that certain people can embody many virtuous characteristics that society venerates. And I would imagine that people that act almost in a saintly fashion, who are very concerned with the welfare for others, when these people take to the streets and assert and lead movements for various groups with which they are a part of. They are not separate from, they are not trying to co-opt other people's issues. But when they become the leaders of themselves and they lead others, I think that those traits of 
of a spiritual leadership, of, a, of an ethical leadership, of a, a leadership which is really deeply, deeply connected and rooted in the interests of their community. I think those people, um, those people are going to lead the way forward, I think. And I think that we all have responsibility to become those leaders. And the greatest asset of a leader is to help provide a platform and elevate another person to develop their full potential. We all have this incredible latent potential that we only begin to use in bits and pieces. We can really go anywhere we wish our minds to apply with all of our blood, sweat, and tears. But if we can harness this potential and really focus in educating ourselves and providing opportunity to converse and educate with others, I think that we're making some good progress. I think it has to, at a certain point, be organized. I think that certain certain issues in society require a collective movement to address those issues. You know, one of the things that comes to mind as you're speaking, Alex, is that we all play a role in this kind of change, individually and, as you say, collectively within social movements, and that if we started this show talking about the TPP and the TTIP, it's also, you know, one of the alternatives is actually to look at our local economics, not just as how can we create a resilient local economy, but how can we uplift and support one another? These are the kind of values that come into play when we stop on the side of the road and buy a cup of lemonade from the kids out there with the lemonade stand. We're not buying the world's best lemonade. We're buying the, the support and love of, of our local kids. This is also why we choose to support our local bakers or our local farmers that rooted in this local economics is not the idea that we're getting the cheapest, fastest, bestest product on the block. That's cutthroat competition mentality. What we're really looking for is a way to support and uplift one another in our whole communities of saying, I care about you. I care about your family. I care about the land that we share together. And I think that that's something we each make a choice about every single day. Uh, in ways that are small or large. Not everyone can afford to shift all of their lo- their grocery budget, for example, to their local economy. But they can do one thing, and that one thing is one thing more than existed yesterday. You know, Gandhi was the master of these kind of turning the personal into the social movements. The Indian self-liberation or self-rule movement was really had its underpinnings in these constructive programs, which were very much rooted in local economies. And so it wasn't empty rhetoric when Gandhi said, live simply so that others may simply live. This was a rallying cry. This was a, um, uh, not a command so much as a, a principle to put forth for the entire movement. And I think that they, these are principles that really can move us and apply to us in our current struggles with massive corporations usurping our governments and our democracies, and this move towards a really localized, as you and Sherry have said, movement um, that reconnects us to each other in the land. What are your thoughts on some of this? I think that there's a definite connection between the struggle for self-determination, which is found in this movement towards economic democracy, towards various other sovereignty movements where people just want to be able to express their desires 
to control their own circumstances. Alex, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to get at is this idea that our this notion of economic democracy and self-rule, which is self-liberation, is very deeply entwined in our current struggles today. For you in your own work, you work directly in talking with people about economic democracy. Is this something that you bring up with them that when we're looking at these massive corporations and the converse of local economies, um, are you able to integrate every level of this personal change, social change, and uh, large economic theory, as well as spiritual practice? I mean, that's a pretty ambitious uh, set of levels. Do you find that you're able to do that? I'm not fully able to do that, but I'm able to do bits and pieces in growing bits and pieces toward that. And and by this, I mean, on an individual level, of course, I, I would like to improve my own circumstances, but I also collectively have the sense of responsibility that good people need to step forward and to show that there really is an alternative to global corporate capitalism controlling everyone's life, not offering any other opportunity other than to buy sweatshop junk that ruins our chances for a local economy. Or, conversely, that we have to buy food, which is, in Maine, coming on average from almost 2,000 miles away. I am very fortunate and privileged to be able to have the opportunity to work with a variety of social justice groups. But my, my inclination really is to be a tangent point between social justice movement and new economy movements. Unfortunately, these are two separate worlds too much of the time. The paradigm of social justice movements is to work within the system to get a slightly bigger crumb falling from uh, the plate of the people that have all of the opportunity in our society, the one percenters that really control much of our society, unfortunately. Well, I think that it's our responsibility. We have a, an obligation. Earlier today, I saw something online where somebody was saying, well, there isn't anything we can do about it because the deck is stacked against us. You know, and you talk about these two worlds being separated too often, most of the time. Um, you know, it's a similar kind of thing to the deck being stacked against us, that we, the citizens, we, the people, have an obligation to unstack the deck. We have an obligation to close the gap that exists between, you know, these two worlds and to be able to um, create the type of world going forward that we would like to live in, but also that we would like to leave for our future generations, that we have an obligation to do that, that we have a responsibility that comes along with all of the rights that we claim. And that um, nobody ever said that that was going to be easy. But what's exciting to me is the number of people who are coming to this awakened awareness about what needs to be done and who are willing to not only give it a nod, but to give it their blood, sweat and tears to invest themselves in creating 
um, the type of environments where this can actually exist because it's not just going to crop out out of crop up out of the ground all on its own. And so what's one or two things that we can do in our own lives to help move us in that direction? Here is what I find um, to be a tremendous opportunity. What we consume more than anything else in our lives is food. I think that it's very important to know where our food comes from and the conditions that go into preparing and making our food for both of the animals and for the people that work on the farms. One thing that people can do is they could go check out a local farm and hang out with the farmers and see what's going on. I think that would be lovely as a first step to knowing our communities. Beyond that first step, I think another step could be supporting community agriculture. Becoming a member of a CSA, I think, is a wonderful way to use our money in our local economy to support local farmers, and they support us with giving us locally made, very nutritious food. I think that's just one of the most marvelous things there is. And I just want to let our listeners know that we're talking with Alex Chakamovich, who is an activist, a spiritualist, a small businessman living in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. He's been active as an organizer with a variety of social justice and economic justice campaigns. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your insights, and your thoughts on Love and Revolution Radio. Thank you very much for the opportunity and to you both for a wonderful show. Thanks this week to our guest, Alex Jakimovich, and to my radiant and luminous co-host, Rivera Sun. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, with words and music by Diane Patterson, is also performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. You can follow the equally luminous and radiant Sherry Mitchell on her Sacred Instructions Facebook page, where she often posts her insightful and inspiring comments on contemporary events and spiritual understandings. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program. We're happy about all the radio stations across the country that are picking up the show, and we'd love it if your radio station wanted to be one of them. You can ask them and they can contact us. We can be reached through the Love and Revolution page on my website, www.riverasun.com, which is also where you can sign up for our weekly fun and link-filled email. We are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podomatic. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Sherry Mitchell. Our guest today, Alex, has given us a lot to think about regarding economic democracy and the ways that our democracy can be expanded to include all living beings. Maybe you'll take the time to connect with your local farmers and to find a CSA that you can join by the time that we talk to you next week. What if you knew 